0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org
2: to learn more. This is MPB
1: News.
3: Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, April 13th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a federal emergency relief program targets those facing rent and utility hardships due to the coronavirus pandemic. Then, understaffing in prisons across Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama have been a problem for years. We examine why it's so difficult to find and keep new correctional officers. Plus, in our second installment of Your Vote, Your Voice, we explore the different efforts and perspectives shaping the debate over extended early voting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Tenants in Mississippi who are behind on their rent and utility bills due to the coronavirus pandemic can now apply for emergency rental assistance through a federal relief program. Mississippi Home Corporation is administering the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, tasked with allocating $186 million in aid to tenants who are facing financial hardships brought on by lost income, unemployment, or increased expenses because of the pandemic. Executive Director Scott Spivey shares more with our Des-
1: the Emergency Rental Assistance Program was created by the stimulus package passed in December of 2020. Uh, it can provide up to 15 months of rent and utility assistance for people impacted by the coronavirus. Mississippi received a total of $200 million uh, for the Emergency Rental Assistance. Localities with over 200,000 citizens could apply for their own funds, Hines County and Harrison County did so, both received around $7 million. Uh, And MHC has been tasked with administering the balance of those funds.
2: So what have you put in place to distribute the money?
1: So what we've done is we've created a website where people can apply for assistance um, under the uh, Rental Assistance for Mississippians program, Emergency Rental Assistance. The way Treasury wrote the guidelines the way the, uh, for the program is either landlords or tenants can begin an application. Tenants have to acknowledge uh, that an application has been filed on their behalf if landlords decide to uh, enroll most of their rent rolls. The restrictions that are in place are the restrictions that are uh, established by statute. It's for people that make at or below 80% of the area median income. That varies by county and by household size. Um, you know, there has to have been some sort of COVID impact, whether it is an increase in expenses, a loss in income, um, unemployment, uh, something like that. And people are eligible for the full 15 months of assistance plus utilities. So we can pay for water, sewer, we can pay for power, we can pay for gas, and we can pay for fuel uh, if people use fuel oil or or gas out of a tank.
2: Is there a limit to the amount that you'll pay for any given category?
1: No, we did not put limits in place. The only limit is the time frame. And it has to have been, it has to have been, the hardship has to have been during the pandemic, right? So it starts, the eligibility period starts in March of 2020. So from there on, any hardship experienced would qualify. And, you know, so for example, if somebody didn't lose their job until the middle of summer, we could pay 15 months starting in July, right? Um, If people became unemployed very quickly at the start of the pandemic, lost their job, or had their hours cut back where they couldn't pay their rent, the assistance period would start in March and go through, if you count up to 15 months, through June of
4: this year.
2: Have you been able to um, help people who are evicted because the funding so,
4: came too late?
1: Right. So there is eviction assistance. So, A, there is a eviction moratorium in place from the CDC uh, that has been extended through the end of June. In some circumstances, people are finding themselves evicted. There is assistance available through uh, continuum of care agencies that the Mississippi Home Corporation works with through a federal grant that can provide rapid rehousing uh, and, and, and cover a lot of those costs and get people rehoused if they've been evicted. Um, but we're hoping that those cases are few and far between. But there are funds in place, but this program does not with
2: eviction. Are you getting a large response from this?
1: We've received over 7,000 applications. Uh, That number may have been updated since the last time I checked it. Um, In the two weeks that we've been open, we only opened applications two weeks ago today. So we are seeing a large response. We'd like it to be bigger. Part of it, part of rolling out a program like this is making sure that every eligible family, every eligible Mississippian knows that there's assistance available uh, and applies for the assistance. This isn't, uh, you know, this isn't something that we're trying to be gatekeepers and determine, you you know, how to best spend the money. There's enough money in place to cover, you know, the back rent and back utilities that people have experienced in the pandemic. If they qualify based on income and hardship, we want them to apply. Even if they're not sure if they qualify, they should go ahead and apply and have that question answered because this money is here to help.
2: Well, Scott Spivey with the Mississippi Home Corporation, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this program.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: To apply for rental assistance, go
3: to ms-ramp.com. Coming up, understaffing in prisons across Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama has been a problem for years. We examine why it's so difficult to find and keep new correctional officers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory, and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform.
3: This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Across the Gulf states, prisons are understaffed, which can mean dangerous and unstable conditions for prisoners and guards. Mississippi is addressing the issue head on with a unique approach. From the Gulf States Newsroom, Becca Schimmel takes a look at that recruitment effort and examines why it's so difficult to retain correctional officers.
0: The Mississippi Department of Corrections is basing its hiring blitz in an unlikely location, Walmart parking lots across the state. At one of those lots right outside of Jackson, a mobile recruiting team is trying to sell people on a career in corrections.
3: We're trying to get
4: people to fill out applications.
0: Charles crook started out working in the prison and worked his way up to become a probation and parole officer he says he tries to give people who are applying a realistic picture of what the job is like but it takes a special person to be a correctional officer
4: this is really not a job that you want to start out to be afraid of you, you kind of if, if you're afraid and I'm just I'm just saying and it may deter some people you know don't don't come here we need somebody with heart.
0: Through outreach events like these, Mississippi Department of Corrections Commissioner Burl Kane is trying to fill 700 positions by this summer.
4: It worked well. It's going to work. We're going to have all our staff.
0: One of the reasons it's so hard to recruit? Correctional officers have one of the highest rates of injury and illness of all occupations, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And when prisons are short staffed, it can make this already dangerous job even worse. Chronic understaffing is an issue across the region. Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama are all under investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice for prison conditions and release practices.
4: That's really important to keep the Justice Department at bay and and keep Mississippi Department of Corrections within Mississippi.
0: Alabama has been trying to fill its vacancies for much longer. Three years ago, the state was court-ordered to fill more than 2,000 positions. But the department has only managed to hire 300 people so far they have 10 months left. Another roadblock for attracting new officers?
1: Uh, Probably the biggest issue that we have here uh, is the pay.
0: That's Louisiana Department of Corrections Undersecretary Thomas Bickham. Louisiana tried to raise salaries before, but that didn't stop the revolving employment door. The turnover rate in the state is about 73 percent for correctional officers and staff. Yet, Governor John Bell Edwards is now seeking a 10 percent pay raise to address the more than 500 unfilled positions.
1: This is a difficult job, uh, and it's hard to support a family on what amounts to about $26,000 a year.
0: Mississippi is offering higher salaries as a central part of its hiring campaign. But beyond the danger and the low pay, there's also an image problem. University of Alabama criminology professor Susan Dewey has been studying jails and prisons for at least 20 years. She says retaining correctional officers is an issue across the country. And that's partly because of how they are portrayed in films and TV shows as just guards with little training who don't care about inmates. Nothing could
2: be farther from the truth in my experience. Nobody becomes a correctional officer because they they don't want to help others, because they don't want to do good in the world.
0: Dewey says staff inside prisons are often thought of as beneath every other form of law enforcement, despite having the most interaction with people who have been convicted. A lot of times they even get to know them better than counselors. Dewey says in recruitment campaigns, there should be a greater focus on those aspects of the job. I think more
2: emphasis on the huge transformative potential that correctional officers can have in the lives of people who are at their lowest
0: point Correctional officers are in a unique position to be able to help rehabilitate inmates. Tyron Hanks has been a drug and alcohol counselor for the Mississippi Department of Corrections for about a decade. He was helping to recruit at one of the mobile hiring events. He's glad to see a focus on reducing recidivism by improving inmates' lives.
4: You get to see them go through the process of those who really want to change their lives, of actually putting in the work to be um, rehabilitated. So it's rewarding. and. um I
3: wouldn't trade for anything.
0: Being able to make a difference in someone's life is a big part of what's kept him there. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Becca Schimmel.
3: This story was produced as part of a regional collaboration with public media stations in Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. Coming up in our second installment of Your Vote, Your Voice, we explore the different efforts and perspectives shaping the debate over extended early voting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app.
2: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.
3: This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. In the 2020 election, more than one in six of the 1.3 million ballots cast in Mississippi were some form of absentee ballot. This record coincided with the nationwide trend due to the pandemic of larger than usual early and absentee voting. Since then, the record use of mail-in and absentee ballots have brought with it unsubstantiated claims of election fraud and insecurity propagated by many high-profile Republicans, including three of Mississippi's House delegation and Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith. All four voted against the certification of the 2020 election results, and Senator Hyde-Smith received national attention for her comments on Sunday, souls to the polls voting. False allegations of fraud and insecurity aside, the 2020 election did reveal a nationwide appetite for expansion of early voting options, including mail-in ballots. After the state lawmakers elected not to push forward with legislation to expand early or absentee voting. One Democratic representative moved to put it on the ballot. Hester Jackson-McRae of DeSoto County tells our Kobe Vance the ballot initiative aims at creating a 10-day early voting period.
4: My hope is that we can get 10 days of early voting, uh, give people opportunity to get out, especially those that work Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. They can come out on the, the two Saturdays that are available for them to vote. Um, and with this pandemic, we really don't know when it's going to end. So uh, that'll help,
5: too, with long lines and stuff. What are your thoughts on, you know, as the legislature can't seem to pass a, a bill that makes it easier to vote to see? Um, what are your thoughts on seeing residents of Mississippi step up and t- uh, try to pass this themselves? Um, I think it's a good thing uh
4: uh no matter what legislator is going through, what are their reason for not uh passing it, uh we are the peoples we are the people, and we have an, an option to to vote or let the legislator vote, so this time we're going to let the people vote.
5: Could you talk about what your constituents are saying in terms of like uh, maybe it's is it too difficult for them to get out to vote on a Tuesday or maybe they don't qualify for absentee voting?
4: Uh, A lot of them don't qualify for absentee voting. You know, and a lot of my working uh, citizens that uh, just can't take off work, can't afford to take off work, you know, and they're off on the weekend so they can come on Saturday and early vote and make sure their vote is counted.
3: The preliminary paperwork for the ballot initiative was filed in early April. Activist Kelly Jacobs helped author the initiative's language.
2: The initiative actually says um, no fewer than 10 days because 100 years from now, the people might want 30 days of uh, early voting. Uh, And it starts the Saturday before the election and goes 10 days before that.
5: And... Could you explain uh, the need for early voting, especially in uh, this time that we're in, of the pandemic, and then, but also going into years beyond this when things do return more to normal?
2: Well, in DeSoto County, we have 122,000 registered voters. On Election Day, November 3rd, our circuit clerk had 14,000 absentee ballots cast. 14,000 absentee ballots. It was an enormous amount of work. For them to uh, notarize most of them, stick them in the envelope, and then categorize them by uh, which voting precinct they go to. And then it took the poll workers more than 24 hours to count them. They were not allowed to count them until starting after 7 p.m. on Election Day. And who and these poll workers went to work at 7 o'clock in the morning. So they were actually asked to stay awake all that time, all day, to open the envelopes, and then after 7 p.m. to start counting them. It was a huge burden. But meanwhile, out on Election Day, there were lines, very, very long lines of people who wanted to vote because they don't trust the absentee voting system or they just don't qualify for it. Early voting lets anybody, any age who's a registered voter... To vote on one of eleven days, right—the ten early voting days—and then on election day, because everybody doesn't have Tuesday off to go vote.
5: Mississippi is a predominantly Republican state, and a lot of residents here have concerns that early voting will open up um, open up access to voter fraud. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that uh, residents should be worried about if this ballot initiative is passed?
2: Uh, no, because we're not changing uh, the laws on how to register to vote. Uh, we, I don't think we even have a case of voter fraud in ages. But voter fraud can be committed on Election Day just as well as it can be uh, on an early voting day. So if somebody wants to uh, you know, do something fraudulent, that's on them. Having 10 additional days to vote... Uh, without an excuse, that really opens up everybody's opportunity to participate.
3: Republican leadership in the state has expressed anywhere from reluctance to outright refusal when it comes to expanding absentee options. Shortly after the election, Governor Tate Reeves said he would not support any measure, including universal mail-in ballots, and reiterated his position that voting should occur on election day with a few exceptions. But some lawmakers in the party do recognize growing public support for more voting options. Representative Kent McCarty was a co-sponsor of a bipartisan bill that would have expanded early in-person absentee voting. It died in committee, but McCarty says he'd like to see the state provide more early options.
6: I just want to see us do what the the overwhelming majority of every other state, you know, red state, blue state, almost every state in the country um, has offered some kind of, whether it be early voting or, or, you know, several voting days, basically just giving everybody an opportunity to um, to go to the polls in person and cast a ballot in person on more than just election day. And, um, you know, as you know, right now we, we only offer absentee and it's fairly restrictive, um, as far as, you know, what circumstances would allow you to vote absentee. So we just want to see that opened up, um, to allow for that on, on, you know, in-person voting on more days than just election day.
3: Would you prefer having absentee balloting, uh, having those restrictions removed or actually creating uh, voting ahead of time, having early voting?
6: You know, whatever way, you know, technically it's easier for us to implement those across the state. I, I'm, I'm flexible, um, whether we call it in person, you know, early voting, or whether we call it absentee voting, expanded, um, as long as it accomplishes the goal of allowing someone to go to their voting place, present an ID and vote as they do normally in an election. So whether that be on a paper ballot, you know, it be a paper ballot, whether it be on the machine, have a voting machine set up. Um, so, so regardless of what we call it or, you know, however the, the changes are made with the law, the intent would be to have the same method of voting, you know, the same level of security on Election Day that you have on the days prior to Election Day just to allow some more flexibility for those who can't get there on Election
3: you are a Republican. Your position is in opposition of what most of the Republicans feel in the state legislature. How do you reconcile that, or do you feel like you have to reconcile that?
6: No, I mean I think this is a this is a position that when you talk to voters, um, whether they be Republican or Democrat, especially after the, the elections in November, when we saw a lot of places saw lines for the first time, you know they're they're not used to having lines at their precinct. And then it becomes a problem for everybody. So I think whenever people start seeing that, okay, wait, this is actually a problem. and We actually need more options. We need to expand um, the ability to vote securely on more than just election day. Then it becomes a bipartisan um, position. And I think that, you know, if you look at in the legislature, um, this legislation, similar to what we're talking about, has passed the House twice. So it's, it hasn't always been partisan like this. And I know a lot of it is because people are concerned about the security of elections, which we are, too. So, you know, I think I, I would I would love to see it return to that common sense, practical, okay, if, if voting with an ID on Election Day is secure, then voting with an ID the day before Election Day is secure. <laughs> and I think that's what everybody, we need to get back to that. Um, and I think the voters are with us on that.
3: What's your position on mail-in voting?
6: Uh, I, I think that we need to focus on things that we know work, and I think voting in person, um, you know, which we already do, can be – much more secure. I think that you know, mail-in voting, whether whether for better or worse, has um, definitely did not make it out this last election with a great reputation. And I think that we need to focus on something practical, something we can do, and that would be expanding in-person voting. I, I personally am not for expanding mail-in voting. I know a lot of states have gone universal mail-in voting. Um, I would rather focus on in-person early voting because I think we can we can do a lot more to ensure that our elections are secure when we do that, and that's a, that's a doable thing.
3: And just to clarify, you just mentioned like the day before voting, but how many days do you see uh, prior to election day that would be open to early voting?
6: That that would be something I would like to see us work out with um, you know, clerks across the state to see what's doable. I mean, obviously there's going to be an increase. Um, cost and a need for resources in a lot of areas. Well, but I would like to see you know a considerable amount of time, um, whether it be a week, ten days, you know, whatever we can work out with them so that that it works for everybody. I think that's a conversation we need to have with them. But we definitely, you know, I mentioned day before, but I would I would definitely push for you know more than just the day before. I think that we need to we need to give people a reasonable amount of time to do this.
3: Kent McCarty of Hattiesburg represents the 100. 100- 1st District um, in the Mississippi Legislature, and I thank you so much for being with us.
6: Thank you so much for having me. I think this is a really important, important discussion to have.
3: In Mississippi, the Secretary of State's office supervises elections according to statutes passed by the legislature. Like Governor Reeve, Secretary Michael Watson opposes expansion of mail-in voting, citing security concerns. He says his office is getting feedback from county clerks on the logistical hurdles of expanded early or in-person absentee options.
6: I think that's where we have to get in and get the research, do the hard work. What makes sense for Mississippi and, you know, as a conservative-minded individual, Uh, Obviously, I want to move forward and and implement things in a conservative fashion, but uh, our goal is for all Mississippians, eligible Mississippians, make it as easy as possible for them to vote uh, and balance that with the integrity of the system. So I've talked to circuit clerks about this issue. There are some logistics concerns. So say you have in-person early absentee voting. Your folks with your smaller courthouses, uh, you know, they've got to conduct their business as well. They still have court, so they still got to take care of that. They still have folks coming in wanting to get married, so they got to issue marriage licenses. So this, this logistic question is going to be, you have to answer it as well, not just the policy piece, but how do you implement it? So it's a bigger discussion. Uh, you, you talk about the policy, but you also talk about the implementation and the logistics.
3: Absentee voting is currently not universal in Mississippi. Residents must demonstrate a need based on age, health, work demands, or be temporarily relocated or serving in the armed forces. Coming up in part three of Your Vote, Your Voice.
4: And unless they have all of their documents to make them be a citizen in the state of Mississippi, that's a barrier, even if they are eligible to vote once they get out.
3: We examine both past and existing barriers to voting. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning.